Welcome to Superhero Leadership, the podcast that explores outstanding leadership through the lens of some of the most successful superhero leaders in business, sports, politics, the military, and public service. This podcast is for anyone who aspires to great leadership. Our host, Peter Cuneo, has experienced superhero leadership throughout his life and career. From serving as a naval officer in the Vietnam War to being the CEO of Marvel Entertainment, Peter has completed seven business turnarounds in consumer products, media, and in entertainment, and served on the boards of many public and private enterprises, often as chairman. Drawing from his list of what he considers 32 essential qualities and characteristics for great leaders, Peter offers actionable takeaways you can implement into your own life and career today. Here's Peter to introduce his guest. Amateur and professional sports always need superhero leadership to produce championship teams. One of my favorite sports is hockey, which can be argued is the toughest sport of all. Our guest today knows all about hockey and about leadership. He grew up in northern Minnesota in a hockey-playing family. He played for the University of Minnesota, and they won the NCAA championship in 1974 and 1976. In 1976, he was named the most valuable player of the finals as a defenseman. The coach for that Minnesota team was Herb Brooks, one of the most enigmatic leaders in sports history. Later, Brooks was the coach of the U.S. Olympic team at the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York. And there, the U.S. team of college players won the gold medal after defeating the Russian team of professionals who are considered, by many, to be the greatest hockey team ever. And in the final game, they beat the finish to wrap up the gold. Our guests play professional hockey in the World Hockey League and in the National Hockey League. He also was on the 1977 and 1982 U.S. team in the World Hockey Championships. He's been an assistant coach for the St. Louis Blues. He has been a commentator on Fox, ESPN, ABC, and NBC for five Winter Olympics and 25 Stanley Cup finals. He has been the regular TV commentator for the St. Louis Blues, the New York Islanders, and for the past 18 years for the New York Rangers. Our guest today is my great friend, Joe Micheletti. Thank you, Peter. Joe, how are you? I'm, I'm great. I'm honored to be here with you. Well, my you, friend. Where it's, the honor is really on our side of the table, I'll tell you. When I think about hockey, and we talk about leadership on this show quite often, different forms of leadership. And in professional sports, and I'll talk specifically about hockey, there are many people tasked with leadership and many different forms of leadership. So when I think of hockey, I think of the general manager, the coach, the captain of the team, and so on. And leadership is required in, in many areas. The first would be, of course, on the ice. Team doesn't start well, not playing up to their capabilities. What does the captain do? What does the coach do to get them excited, to get them motivated and going in the right direction? Second would be on the bench. What are the conversations going on the bench, for example? The third is in the locker room, and you've got locker room before the game, during the game, and after the game. The next area in terms of leadership is on a plane coming back from a different city, 
And basically, you had a tough loss. What are people saying or doing about leadership then? Also have different types of people on the team. So you might have a young 21-year-old, 22-year-old, fairly naive, very good hockey player, has never been in the limelight, like in our case here in New York City, has to deal with the media and all that attention. That's a biggie. But then you also have veterans who might be even at the, near the ends of their careers. They've had great careers. They might even be going to the Hall of Fame. Who knows? But how you lead them is quite different than the young players. Then you also have, because the National Hockey League is now filled with players from all countries just about around the world, very international in scope, and many of those players don't speak English or don't have a good command of English. How do you lead those people? So it's a potpourri, if you will, of different types of leadership. And if you're one of those people I mentioned, you've got to jump around, depending on the situation, almost transform yourself as a leader. This is something we don't see on this show that often. Mm -hmm. Typically, you're leading a big company. It's very straightforward in where you want to get and what your leadership style should be. The other thing that we know about leadership is that very often, great leaders are not great in every situation. Any general thoughts that you might have about this subject? Yeah. You know, I've been around a long time, so I've obviously experienced a, a, a lot of different types of leadership types of leaders. The one common uh, item, I think, in, in all that, Peter, is, is, is it generally starts at the top. That's generally where it starts. And even to this day, and I've been in this game now for 45 years, let's say, and even going back earlier than that, because even when you're a young player, you're being influenced when you're eight years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, 14 years old, 16 years high school and different coaches and different personalities. And the thing that kind of stands out for all of that is that whoever that person is in charge and at the earlier ages, you you don't go past the coach. The coach is in charge of everything. As you get a little bit older and get to college and pros, now you've got, as you were talking before, you've got a general manager and you've got, you've got an owner. And so there are more layers and different layers of that. But the one common theme is that most great organizations have top leadership that are leading the way and setting the tone. And those that struggle generally don't have great leadership. And you can have the players, you can have the coach, you, you can have what looks like to be a winning team, and that's what it's all about, especially when you get to the pros, is just winning and losing. And yet that fine line of winning and losing can be determined by a mindset. And so the last thing that as a player you need is to be thinking about what's happening above you and having a conversation amongst teammates that, why did he do that? The organizations that keep the minds for the players clear of, the, of that noise and they feel going in that they are led properly, they've got everything they need to win, and now it's up to us, are generally the organizations have the best chance of winning. Joe, when there is a change at the top, Let's say that the previous coach was offensive-oriented. The new coach is defense-oriented. I'm talking about any sport, not just hockey. 
there's a change and it's certainly going to have an effect on the players. Mm-hmm. We have a change in, you might call culture almost. What was the most important aspects? Everything's important, but All right. what you're going to focus on. How hard is that to do? A couple of things, Peter, because it's like everything else, as we go through life, there's changes. And if you're not ready to either be part of the changes or accept changes, you're probably more than likely going to be left behind. And the same thing has happened in in sport. Hockey, obviously, is the one I'm most familiar with. And because it used to be in the old days, and this this is prior to the players making the kind of money they're making now. It used to be that it was, it was the coaches that determined just about everything that was happening. And if you didn't listen to them, you were gone. And that was the old way and the old culture, the, the old culture. Correct. And the, what's, what's happened as we have moved forward is that now it's generally the players that stay and the coaches that go. So it's been a complete flip-flop with the way that the way the game used to be, the way it is now, the way it's managed, the way you deal with your players. I mean, there's some Scotty Bowman, the great Scotty Bowman, who's won nine or 10 Stanley Cups as and considered the greatest coach of all time. When he coached the St. Louis Blues back in the late 60s, when they had just gotten into the league, he, you used to walk up and down the bench when they were, when he was mad and when the team was not playing well and the player, because it's up to the coach to tell the players who goes on the ice next. And so he would just quiet down, not say anything. And so players would start saying, to him, who's up next? And he'd say, any five of you dogs, any five dogs, get out, get out there. That doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> now it's, the, the players are, are much more sensitive than they used to be. Mm-hmm. The communication now that goes on between coaches and players is totally different than it used to be. And as a player in those older days, you used to just take it. You just, ta- just take it and then you move on. So that's been a big change, I think, in, and again, not just in hockey, but in, in professional sport. And I think for the better, I think for the better, because it allows people to grow and allows people to express themselves. And, and I think the coaching has become better over time as well. But so that's been a transition in the sport that's, that's really been important. And, and because of that, when you talk about a change of culture, the change of culture, I think, can be easier in a shorter period of time now because it's the players that are staying, a lot of times because of contracts, salary caps, all that has to be, the money is the biggest thing. And if you have, say, a veteran team. I go back to, say, the 1994 New York Rangers. They won the Stanley Cup that year. I believe the year before they missed the playoffs. And this was a team that had Mark Messier and Brian Leach and a bunch of Hall of Famers. Now, they made a few trades in 94 to get better, but to go from missing the playoffs to becoming the best team in hockey in in the regular season and then winning the Stanley Cup, you know, they managed coaching change. And so they, they got rid of a wonderful gentleman, God rest his soul, by the name of Roger Nielsen, who everybody loved, to, to a tyrannical personality in Mike Keenan, who none of, not a lot of people loved. But he had, but he had his finger on the pulse. He had a, a captain that would carry on his message. 
And so that was a very quick change and turnaround that went. So a team went from not making the playoffs to winning a championship in 12 months. Yeah. It doesn't happen very often, but it can. And I think even more so nowadays where it's difficult to move players and to trade players. And even if you want to, because of their contracts. So that's why a lot of times now they, they change the coach and they bring somebody in that did it, had a different philosophy uh, about how to play the game and the importance of getting these players on your side, especially if you have a talented team and you have enough veterans where you think, if you look on paper, that you have a chance to win a championship. Yep. And that's why we see so many coaching changes. Sure. We're talking about different types of leadership, but there are certain fundamentals that I think that are universal for all forms of leadership. So let me read a couple to you uh, that come from our 32 Essentials for Superhero Leadership. And they're really in the first section, which I call fundamentals. In a way, these are not surprising attributes at all, but it's what is surprising is how few leaders actually practice them. Mm -hmm. Just the the first one, of course, is generate positive energy from minute one. Mm -hmm. And I think certainly the in my situation with turnarounds and people scared for their jobs and a lot of other factors like that, a lot of uncertainty, you know, in the situation that generating positive energies comes in two ways. It's not only how you talk, it's also how you act. Mm-hmm. And, and I actually think just body language matters a great deal in that, in that mm-hmm. situation. Yeah. And I suspect we see that in sports too. Yeah. I, I, I have a number of different examples of, of that. I go back to now, high school hockey in Minnesota is like high school basketball in Indiana, right? It's something that is so special and so unique. And back when I was playing high school hockey, there were only eight teams in the state of Minnesota that, that could qualify for the state high school, high school hockey tournament. And Hibbing, where I grew up, I was born in National Falls, but I grew up in Hibbing from a big family. And they hadn't won a state championship in 54 seasons, 54 years. And so when I was a senior, we had a team that was now capable of doing that. But the, and what you're talking about there, the positive energy, our head high school coach was a gentleman by the name of George Perpich, big, burly gentleman, huge, big head, big body, big and he was the nicest person in the world. And two of his sons played on the team. And one of them, George Jr., was my best friend. And pl- we played together on the same line all through, since we were young, all the way through high school. And so his father, with that attitude, you always came to the rink with a smile on your face because he was such a wonderful person that you wanted to win. Now, we had an assistant coach that would take the other part of that. But he was the one that would get on our case and really keep us on our toes, I guess you could say. But it was George Sr. that, and I had older brothers that all played for him as well. He was a high school hockey coach for 35 or 40 years. But he created an atmosphere that you couldn't wait to get there. You couldn't wait to get to the rink, couldn't wait to play, couldn't wait to see him, couldn't wait to have fun. And, and we ended up winning the state championship my senior year. After starting off the season, I think we were 17 and 0, and we lost the last three games of the regular season, and there was a total panic, except for George Sr. And we were able to turn it around, and eventually we 
qualified and then we won the so, state championship, state hockey championship. But his, yeah. but he created this, this atmosphere of positivity. So we've all seen the movie Hoosiers. Okay. Mm -hmm. When they make the movie of your winning, what are they going to call it? The Gophers? What, 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 what's <laughs> we were the Blue Jackets. The Blue Jackets. The Hibbing Blue Jackets. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sometimes yeah. say the start of my career in leadership was in high school. So I went to a public high school here in Queens, New York. Mm -hmm. 4,000 students. 1,000 wow. in my class. Yeah. And my father had been a very successful basketball player, both the old city here in Manhattan, three years and then went to the University of North Carolina. They won the national championship in 1940. Hmm. He was the sixth man. Wow. He's a great athlete by far. Yeah. So it's my senior year. I've never been on the basketball team, just for fun, not expecting to get on. I was good, not really good. I tried out, and lo and behold, the 13th man on the team turns out to be me. And I'm sure my teammates were in shock. I was in shock, too. Yeah. And the way it works in, in the what was then called maybe the same now, P the PSA, Public School Athletic League, PSAL. Mm -hmm. You go, you play other high schools in the city. Mm -hmm. And there's an exhibition season for your two or three games before you start the regular standings. And we had, we had gone around and played a couple of games and I, I was in for two minutes for three games. And so at the end of that game, the, the coach comes to me and he says, you know, you know, you're not going to play very much, right? I said, yeah, I think I knew that from the beginning, coach. He said, but I need a manager. I'm in, coach. <laughs> and I, and actually it was, I got to stay with the team, travel. I had some mediocre things. I had to make sure the basketballs were blown up to the right pressure, but I also kept the stats. Yeah. And for, for the team, members of the team, the stats, even back then were a big deal. Right. And they would, they were looking at me after the game. How many did this uh, did I do? No, I didn't have six rebounds. I had seven. Yeah. You, you screwed it up. Right. And it still that happens. That kind of thing. I was a little bit of a leader, just a touch yeah. in that role. Okay. Yes. You know, another one of our fundamentals reads as follows. Be human, honest, tell people what you really think and admit your mistakes. Mm -hmm. And the admit your mistakes is one that I have a fair amount of experience with, but I learned early in during when I was in the Navy in the Vietnam War, captain of my ship, who I revere to this day, was a great leader and he was not afraid to admit when he personally made mistakes and mm -hmm. he won a great deal of loyalty from the ship and the crew because he seemed so human, you know, and, he, and we all made mistakes, but we're all going to stick together as yeah. a team. Um, any people you that you remind you of that particular one? Yeah. You, you know, you, you mentioned Herb Brooks. Yeah. Um, greatest coach I ever played for. Um, and the one that I learned more about the sport, about the game, as far as the technicalities of the sport, was Herb. But he had this fantastic ability, which is, I think, why they won the Olympics, which is still unheard of. Everybody yeah, still I, I don't shakes wanna, their I, I, Yeah, I don't want to break you know? in, but I, I have said in, in publicly in the past that for me at least, if you had to pick one greatest moment in the history of American sports, right. it would have been that game, right. 1980, 
February 22nd. Yeah. I still know it. I've been to the rink long after yeah. the Olympics were through. Yeah. And uh, I still think that would be my choice personally. Yeah. Yeah. A lot I, of other good choices. But I, that would be I don't think there's any question. And people I talked to and a lot of those players that were on that team, I was teammates with and friends with. I had already turned professional. I couldn't, I didn't yeah. qualify to even try out for that team. Not sure I would have made it anyway. But, but the thing about Herb Brooks is it, I think his greatest strength was his ability to push people to the point where he would get to know them maybe better than they knew themselves. And in some of the ways he did that and were, I had my own personal experiences with him. And when I was early in my career there and we were playing, we were playing a, a series out against Colorado College and in Colorado Springs. And in Colorado Springs is where the U.S. Air Force Academy is located, right? And my older brother, two years older than me, went to the U.S. Air Force Academy, played hockey, was a captain of the hockey team. And my first visit there as a member of the Gopher, my brother was going to be at the game. And we lost the game and we didn't play very well. And Herb came in afterwards and he wasn't happy with us. And he said to me, and he said, and just because your brother's here, if you forget about the, the play, you're out, you're, you're his family stuff. And I said something back to him because I didn't like what he said about family. And game ended. He left the locker room. We go back to the hotel. I have a, I have a message. I didn't actually get the message until after dinner. So now it's about 10 o'clock at night or so. And uh, I have a message on my phone. We didn't have cell phones back then. And the message was, come to my room. Turb, come to my room. So I went to his room. And he said, he said, I think I was out of line there. Mm. Admit your and mistakes. It, and that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, so exactly. he said, because he, he had forgotten how tight our family was because he had gotten to know my parents. He recruited my parents before he recruited me. Mm -hmm. And so he became like a son to my mother and father. And I also, as I mentioned, I was one of nine kids. I was the fifth, the first six were boys. I was the fifth boy. Even though it was early, he knew how tight our family was. And he said that he either said it because he knew it was going to totally irritate me mm. or he made a mistake on how he did it. But what he did was that night he brought me, I went to his room and he said, I'm yeah. sorry. I made a mistake about that. Yeah. And I'm sorry. And I said, Herbie, this is my family. That's, that's, we talked about it. it's off limits. And he gave me a little pat and he said, let's get back to work tomorrow. And that was that. No. And, and I've seen him do that. And then even, even later on, as I continued to grow and then I was a captain my senior year and I had more, Herbie and I had more one-on-one -on -one conversations about the team and that type of thing. But that was my first personal experience with him of mm -hmm. him saying, mm -hmm. because he was known as a hard ass and as a guy that was, you know, in charge and tough and all, and he was all of that. But there, but he had that side to him where he was smart enough to say, I'm going to lose this guy a little bit if I don't do something. And I think because of that and how he learned how to deal with people and understand their personalities and everything about them, when it came time for the Winter Olympics, again, to do what they did is still, everybody continues, even to this day, they shake their head at how they do it. And they did it because I think of his ability to yeah. understand each of his players and get them to play at a maximum level because of yeah, that. Yeah. Miracle on ice. Yeah. Do you believe in miracles? And I don't know. I still remember the call right. very well. Yeah.
I think, let me throw another one at you, though, that I think is important, which many leaders find very tough to do, but I think is key to great leadership. It's our number nine. Find a few people who will tell the truth, even when it hurts, who will level with you about your performance. (laughs) This can be this. Listen, I know it can be your wife and my wife, but putting them aside, it can be, it could be anyone. It, It could be your boss. It could be someone who works for you. It could be a teammate. It could be somebody right. that that trusts you enough to mm-hmm. say hey joe or hey peter yeah. you blew it yeah okay. i can always defer to hurry because of he was uh, there was so much there and the four years i spent with him and uh, the championships and our best team was actually 75 when we didn't we lost in the finals in 75 that was actually a best team we had while i was there but so when herb recruited me i was a forward i played center all my high school, my career getting up to college and when herb recruited me he said, I'm going to switch you to defense. I said, okay. And he said, you know why? I said, no. And this was, uh, again, the genius of Herb. He said, because I always play my best athletes on defense and my smartest players on defense. So he says, I'm going to teach you how to play defense. I said, great. And it took me half the season. I didn't play a game for the first half of the season, for my freshman season, because I didn't know how to skate backwards. Every day he was with me working backwards. But it came to a point where he said, you're ready. You're ready to go. Now you're a hockey player. Now you're the, and he would do that and be honest with you about mm-hmm. not being ready to play and then tell you when you were ready to play. Mm-hmm. That was on the hockey side. Uh, when I ended up in the broadcast business, which was totally by accident, I was finished playing hockey. I was in the investment business with, you remember E.F. Hutton? Sure. I got my Series 7. Everyone uh, listens. Every, yeah, when, people, when E.F. Hutton talks, everyone right. listens. That's right. So I got registered with E.F. Hutton, and I was in my first year of business, and I was in St. Louis, and the play-by-play voice of the St. Louis Blues be, who became a client of mine. I didn't know him all that well because times were different back then and how the broadcasters dealt with the players. Now there's much more interaction than there used to be. So I didn't know Dan Kelly all that well, but Dan Kelly was the voice of hockey, not just the St. Louis Blues. He came out of Ottawa, Canada. He was the voice of Hockey Night in Canada. He was the voice of every national game. If you remember Bobby Orr scoring the great goal to win the Stanley Cup and the picture of him flying through the air, if you go back and listen to that call, it was Dan Kelly doing play-by-play. Okay. If you go back to 1987, the, the Canada Cup series, when Canada beat Russia to win the Canada Cup series, it was Gretzky to Lemieux scores. That was Dan Kelly. He was the voice of hockey. God rest his soul. We lost him. He was 52 years old. He died of lung cancer. Right. But, but he called me out of the blue one day and he said, he said to me, he said, I need somebody to be my analyst on radio this year. And he said, I think you should, I think you should do it. And I, I didn't know the first thing about broadcasting, nothing. And he said, you're not going to make any money, but it'll get you back in the game and it'll probably even help your business. And I think we'd have some fun doing it. So I said, so I talked to with my wife and my employer. And we said, okay, let's go, let's do it. The first game that we ever worked together was a preseason game. 
And he had a classic call that he was known for. He shoots, he scores, and nobody did it like Dan Kelly. That was his moniker. That was his call. And we're seven minutes into a game in Peoria, Illinois, the Blues against the Detroit Red Wings. It's a preseason game. It's my first game I've ever worked. I didn't even have a pencil on me. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And the Blues score a goal. He goes into his call, and like in the middle of his call, I say something on the air. And he turns and he looks at me, he sends it to commercial, and he looked at me and he says, if you ever do that again, (laughs) you're fired. And I said, do what? He said, don't talk when I'm talking. But but that was the start of it. I'd, I'd never worked before. And then what happened after that was as we would work games, especially on the road, he and I would always go out together after the games to get a beer, to get a bite to eat. And he would, we would have a beer. And there was a particular game. I'll never forget it. We were working in New Jersey, playing against the Blues and the Devils. Forget what happened in the game. It was afterwards where we sat down, had a beer, and he looked at me and said, you embarrassed yourself tonight. You really embarrassed yourself tonight. And I said, I I did? He said, you did. I said, how? And he said, first period. I asked you about New Jersey's power play. You gave me nothing. Second period. I asked you about this player. He was a former teammate of yours in Colorado. You gave me nothing. He said, you got to know what you're talking about. And he would do that. But then there's another game a month later. We're in Toronto and we do the same thing. Forget the game. We go out afterwards. He loved Chinese food. He had a couple of places there he loved to go to. Went there, sat down, just me and him. Had a beer. And he said, boy, we were effing great tonight. Yeah. And I said, we were? And he said, oh, we were. Yeah. And I said, why? And he, did, he said, first period. He said, I made a comment about this and you were bang, you were mm. right on top of it. Yeah. Second period, this happened. Bang, he says, you were right on top of it. He said, we were great. And so that's how I learned the business. Yeah. Because somebody that you're talking about, that kind of leadership, he that was, was, so, leader. yeah. he was so brutally honest with me. Yeah. And he told me right early on too, he said, don't take this wrong. He said, but you know what? People don't want to hear about it anymore when you played. So when you, if you, I'm just going to tell you early, if you start, stop right away using the phrase, when I played, he said, this is a new profession for you. You can yeah. only use that so long. You yeah. want to learn it? I'll teach you. Yeah. And that's what he did. And so he was, he gave me everything on both sides of it. And it was the greatest lesson that I ever learned about this profession, which turned out to be the profession I've made a living at. Yeah. And I go back to Dan Kelly yeah, and, and how he led and yet was able to yeah. be honest, both positive, positive, uh, positively and, and negatively. And, yeah. and, uh, yeah made a huge difference in my life. Joe, let me ask you about your childhood. You mentioned nine, nine kids, mm-hmm. probably most of them played hockey mm-hmm. and you were in uh, Northern Minnesota. Yeah. What do you think some of the qualities that your parents vested in you that led you to have such a successful career? Yeah. So my, my, fa- my father was a, a very talented 
person. Uh, I, I was actually born in International Falls, which is right up on the Canadian border across the river from Fort Francis, Ontario. And I was, again, I was the fifth one. The first seven kids were born in International Falls and the last two in Hibbing. And, and so my father ran a grocery store up there and we lived, at least when I was there, upstairs of the grocery store, he cleaned out the ag, turned it into bedrooms. And, and, and then when we moved to Hibbing, someone had offered him a, a deal to run a furniture store. And he got half ownership of the store with the handshake agreement, look in the eye, shake hands, which is the way they used to do it, right? Not enough people do that anymore, but that he would be able to buy the other half of the store at some point in time. But he was great with his hands. He grew up with one of seven kids. He had to do a lot to help his family and his parents. And so he could build a house. He could tear it down. He could do electrical work. He could do plumbing work. He could do just about anything. And unfortunately, I never, <laughs> that didn't, that wasn't passed on to me. It was passed on to some of my other brothers, but not me. And on my mother's side, my mother had a couple of brothers. All our athleticism came from my mother's side. Uh, I had an uncle that played both professional football and professional uh, basketball. And, and so, so the way this worked is that my grandparents on my father's side played favorites with the kids. And my father was not one of the favorites. And so he learned early on that, that when he raises a family, that will never happen in his family. Mm -hmm. And so we're all treated the same. Mm -hmm. And and my mother, and so my father had, was the, he was the, the I, I don't want to say stronger of the two because my mother was strong too, but my mother was the softer of the two. Okay. She was sure. the smart, she's the saint. And my father was, but my father always said to us, especially later on, Peter, when we talk about success, my father always used to say, I value success this way. If my kids call me and come to see me when they have the opportunity, I'm successful. That's great. And that's what he, that's yeah. what he instilled in us. Yeah. And even we're later on and we all start having kids and he, and we all used to do that. Yeah. We used to go see them if we could at Christmas and yeah. in the summers and, and do what we can bring our kids. And he loved our kids. And yeah. so that was that lesson of, of first of all, don't play favorites, love all your kids. And on my mother's side, who had the softer side, she would always just say, I just want you kids to be good citizens. Hmm. She, and she told me when I was young, like I was 12 or 13 years old, she says, I think you're going to play pro hockey. I said, really? Hmm. She says, yeah, I think you will. But she says, but what's more important is just, I want you to be a good citizen, be a good citizen, be a good person and give. Yeah. And that's what my mother always used to say. If you give in whatever form that is, whether it's money, whether it's your time, whether it's being nice to somebody, she says, you're going to get 10 times back. It's going to be ten, tenfold that you're going to get back in some way. You may not know what it is, but you're going to get that back. And yeah. so she instilled that in us and my father on that side. So that's why to this day, our family's always been close. Yeah, I'm getting from that two things that I think you learned that also outstanding leaders always have. First is perseverance. Mm -hmm. Your father hung in there. A yeah. lot of challenges, yeah. naturally, big family, yeah. middle of nowhere. Yeah. So and at the end, yeah. and at the end, to interrupt yeah. you, at the yeah. end, yeah. it was my father that was one that was still there out of all of them. And I had yeah. lost an uncle. Yeah. But it was my father that at the end 
was the one that took care of my grandmother and my grandfather. Yeah. Despite the fact that he got treated a certain way, he, you talk about perseverance at the end, it was, and he told me one day, our grandfather was now alone. Our grandmother had died and he came to stay with us for a while yeah. at our place in Hibbing. And my father told me, you have to take care of grandpa. I said, okay, I'm taking him out to yeah. the lake today. We're going to go out to the lake. It's a beautiful day. I do that. Yeah. At noon, grandpa says, I want to go back into town. I said, well, grandpa, we just got out here. It's a beautiful day. We're on the <laughs> lake. I got you on the pontoon boat, taking you for a ride. And all the brothers and sisters, he says, you bring me back in or I'm calling a taxi. Okay. So I bring him back in. We walk into our house. I call my father at work and I said, I said, dad, I got a problem. He says, what's your problem? I said, I tell him the problem. And he says, well, what's the problem? And I said, oh, that's the problem. He says, that's not a problem. That's my dad. Whatever he wants, you do. I said, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But well, that you're, was him. You're talking yeah. about another thing, I think, uh, we, that's uh, in, inherent in great leaders. They have a sense of what I'll call altruism, give back. Mm -hmm. Okay. They have empathy. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm not afraid to show it, which is another, I think, highlight of, of outstanding leaders. But I got to tell you, and this is, has to do with the New York Rangers, where I'm a fan. And you mentioned winning the Stanley Cup in 1994. Mm -hmm. And the, game, the thing that, of course, that I goes down in history for me is game six, Mark Messier. Mark Messier guarantees a win. In, in New Jersey. In New Jersey right. against the Devils. Be eliminated if they don't win. And not only do they win, he has a hat. A hat trick. For right. those of you who are not hockey fans, a hat trick is three goals. A big deal. Right. Very big deal. Yeah. In one single game. Yeah. What is it that you talk a little bit about Messier? Yeah. You know him a little bit? I do. I know Mark. I know Mark uh, well, actually. And there are different types of leaders, as you well know. And there are some that are rah-rah and are always, which I played with one. Brian Sutter was our captain in, in St. Louis. And he was one of six... Sutter brothers that played in the National Hockey League. It's remarkable. And Brian was a, he was, he'd eat nails before the game. That's how he was. And he was always, come on, we got to go and hit and get in there. And, and, and so he was very vocal and did it well and did it well. And, and then there's another Steve Eiserman who was a Hall of Famer, played for Detroit all those years. Mm -hmm. And now is the general manager there and has had a fantastic hockey career and won three Stanley Cups in, in, as the captain. He was the youngest captain ever in the history of the National Hockey League. They named him the captain when he was 19 years old. And he said very little. He said very little. He was quiet, but he showed his leadership on the ice. And when he did say something in the locker room, everybody stopped what they were doing because they knew it was going to be something that was well thought out and important. Mm -hmm. Bob Ganey of the Montreal Canadiens was the same way. And with Mark, he had both. Mark had both. Okay. And in, a, in an era where you're asked the question, what kind of player is he? Oh, he's a great offensive player. Could really score. Or, oh, he's a really tough player. Or he was a good leader. Or he could kill penalties. Or he could play the power play. Or what... The thing with Mark, he was all of that. He was someone that was the spokesman all the time for the team. And also, when he got on the ice, he's one of the greatest scorers. I think he's third all time in scoring in the National Hockey League. 
but had a toughness and meanness to him that no one on the other team wanted to fool with him. So he had all these different attributes that most captains will be missing one or two. He wasn't missing any of those. And then on top of that, you get him away from the ice. He's, he was like a, he was like a big baby. He'd say anything about any of the, the work that he would do off the ice for children and firemen and policemen and go on and on. He'd, he'd bring him to tears in two seconds. And you think, wait a second. Here's one of the toughest players that ever played the game, mm-hmm. do anything to win, mm-hmm. would scare the heck out of everybody. Mm-hmm. And he asked him about one of the charities, you know, and he, he, would, he wouldn't be able to hold it in. He was, he was as emotional a, a, a person as I've ever seen. And he's continued that in his, you know, he's in his 60s now, still doing great work for ESPN on TV, and, but still has his charitable causes that mm-hmm. he continues that he continues on with, and he's just a special person. Right. Yeah. Joe, thanks again very much. Okay, this was great fun. All right. Great. My, and uh, All right. I'm honored. Thank you. I know. Thank you very much, Joe. Joe's unique in that he could offer leadership insights from various perspectives on the ice, on the bench, in the locker room, and behind the mic. Here are a few things I hope you took away from our conversation. First, as in all situations, successful organizations have top leadership that sets the tone and creates a positive environment for the team. And second, I think that effective leadership in hockey requires different leadership approaches depending on the situation, such as on the ice, on the bench, and in the locker room. We also talked about the fact that the role of the coach has evolved over time. Players now have more influence in communication with coaches. Leadership is much more of a give and take. I also found very interesting our discussion about changing culture. A change in culture or coaching type can have a significant impact on a team's performance and success. It's subtle, but important. And finally, we talked about the fact that great leaders are not always great in every situation, but they seize the right moment for success. One of the unique benefits of this podcast is your ability to make Peter a part of your leadership team. Peter's looking forward to sharing his experiences with fellow leaders and businesses of all sizes. If you have a particular business concern or challenge, Peter wants to help. So send your written or recorded question to Peter at shlpodcast.com. That's Peter at SHL for Superhero Leadership Podcast.com. Here is this week's question. This question came to us via email from Anita in Tempe, Arizona. Anita writes, Dear Peter, I'm the proud owner of an electronics store here in Tempe. We're actually holding our own against the big box and big brand stores like Best Buy and Target. But hiring the right people, training them, and keeping them motivated is a significant challenge. High turnover rates and unskilled employees can substantially affect productivity and quality of work. I'd love your advice on best hiring practices. Thank you. Well, Anita, this is a great question. It is a situation. What kind of people to hire to support your organization? How do you find them? It's a challenge for everybody. And it's particularly true because 
the work ethic of our young people today is just not what it was in past decades for other people. Again, not their fault. It has to do with our culture and their lack of general experience handling other people. And you're, of course, in retailing. So in retailing, again, customer service is super paramount. You can have similar prices, similar products to your competition and so on. But what will keep you apart is customer service, both the people on the floor, as well as being able to answer questions. I think you should have a hotline for that and so on. But when you're looking at young people, you really need to investigate what their past experiences have been in life. Have they been exposed and had to work with other people, maybe in leadership positions or as part of a team? That's all very important. They understand and have some instincts for dealing with the public. Again, very important. So it'd be great if you can get some people that have retail experiences in the past. They've had success. I do think along with that, though, training is huge. You need to train those people so that they're very knowledgeable about electronics. And if they don't have the answer, they know where to get it for the consumer. The consumer can be standing in front of them. The consumer could be calling up on your hotline or what have you. I think it's very important. You also need to install what I would call performance-based incentives and automatic raises for your employees that are doing well. And you have to define what is doing well. What specific, what measurements are you using to decide what kind of employee are they? Are they great? Are they mediocre or not? And, you know, I think special events would also be very important. Think about some things you can do, again, for your store that maybe other people aren't doing. You could have classes where people talk about equipment or various electronics products, for example, that they might want to know about. Educate the public. Do it for free. Have experts come in. It won't cost you much, but I guarantee you'll get sales from that. There's probably a hundred areas in electronics that consumers would be glad to learn a little bit more about. Special events, not just sales, not just, hey, we're offering, you know, $100 off on somebody's television set. It's got to be more than that. You can combine those events with these other special events, but look to be different. And they will remember, you know, that you are different. And when somebody copies you, who's a competitor, move on to the next thing. So I hope that helps. Retailing is a tough challenge, Anita, I know, particularly with the rise of businesses that will just deliver to your door. So you've got to get people out and get them engaged, either online or, more importantly, face-to-face, and you will see the benefits. I hope that helps, Anita. But really, thanks very much. Really appreciate your letter. That's it for this episode of Superhero Leadership. I want to thank... Joe Micheletti for joining me, and I hope you will join me again next time. Until then, stay focused, stay driven, and keep leading like a superhero with purpose, passion, and integrity. I'm Peter Cuneo. Hey, by the way, if you haven't gotten your free copy of the 32 Essentials for Superhero Leadership, please go to our website at petercuneo.com.